up, everybody? Welcome to the Digital Discipleship Podcast. I got my homies up here from ORU. We are excited to be on the podcast. So I'm going to have them go around and introduce themselves really quick, and then we're going to jump into questions. They're going to be answering all sorts of questions that uh, my Instagram people submitted. We have some really fun questions lined up today, but you got to know who's answering them first. So I'm going to start with my beautiful wife. She's the queen, so she has to go first. So hey, wifey. Hey, uh, I'm Ali Mendoza. Augustine is my husband. I don't know what else to say. What do you do? I am the Associate Director of Spiritual Life at Oral Roberts University and the Co-Director of ORU Missions and Outreach. Wow. So official. I love it. And then we've invited two of our staff members on Spiritual Life. We have Chandler and Gabby. Gabby, introduce yourself to the world. Yeah, I am Gabby Williams. I'm the Women's Chaplain Coordinator at ORU. My name is Chandler Petrek. I am the men's chaplain coordinator at ORU. Let's go. You know, the four of us do a lot of discipleship on campus in the lives of students. And I think when I look at the Bible and I see Jesus and everything he did with his disciples, the crowds, really what they did was they asked him a lot of questions and he asked a lot of questions back. And so I think questions are really at the heart of discipleship. So Hence why I thought it'd be fun just to do a Q&A where people could ask whatever they wanted and we get to just kind of give them unfiltered responses. And uh, so we'll start off easy, really easy. And I'll have Chandler answer first because I know he's got an opinion on this. So easy segue for someone living in Tulsa, someone visiting Tulsa, what is the best coffee shop in Tulsa? Yeah, I would say the best coffee shop in Tulsa for somebody who just needs to start out is Nordagio's mm. by far. By far. Interesting. Wow. By far. Gabby and I have such disagreement on our faces. <laughs> well, I think I think it depends on what you're rating it for. I would say for coffee, Foolish Things has incredible coffee. Amen. So yes. Try Foolish Things. For convenience location to ORU, I'm with Chandler. Nords is a great option. Great. Local, you know, really close. For Christmas decor, Lorne <laughs> Wow, all the categories. Only uh, Gabby would have a Christmas category. <laughs> I think my personal favorite coffee shop is a little known coffee shop called Hope. It's on Peoria Avenue and it's like a church hybrid coffee shop. So they have like select hours, but they serve Onyx coffee, which is incredible coffee. So I love them and it's a great vibe. So we got Nordagio's, Foolish Things, Hope, and Lorne. Some great, great coffee options. Foolish Things is my answer. So I'm with you, Gabby, for coffee, 100%. Okay, uh, next question. What advice do you guys have for someone trying to choose a major in college? Chandler, we can jump with you first. Yeah, so something that I wrestled a lot with when I was first coming to ORU a few years ago was a lot of different opinions from people on honestly about money and the future. Like, is this major going to pay off kind of thing? Yeah. But one thing that helped me so much is honestly just doing what I knew that I loved and doing something that I knew I would invest my whole life into. And so for me, that was biblical literature. Now I would also say, don't be afraid of choosing one thing and then maybe down the road, changing because I did that twice. And I think that 
was beneficial because it gave me room to not be set on one thing. I also came to ORU and did not know what I wanted to do. So for me, it was super helpful on a more practical note to, like Chandler said, consider what I was interested in and what I was passionate about, but also like actually looking at the physical degree plan sheet. So I considered a major and was looking at the degree plan sheet. And I was like, I do not want to take any of these classes. <laughs> so, I mean, on a practical note, it was helpful for me to kind of narrow down, does this sound interesting? Yeah. And even just taking a class in that major um, to see if you like it or not. And I think one thing I'd add to is that your major doesn't define your career or like jobs or what God's going to have you do. Like if you graduate with a business degree, you probably won't do business your entire life. Like there's a variety of things you do. So I think some people like if I'm in the wrong degree, then I can't do the things that I want to do or that God's telling me to do. Okay. Next question. What are your guys' thoughts on be real? What are the positives? What are the negatives? I think you said it good. I think there's a lot of positives and negatives to it, just like I think a lot of social media. Personally, I think the idea of the app is really cool. You know, the emphasis on being unfiltered and, and not just being a highlight reel, which was like the purpose of why it was created in the first place. But I don't think that it has necessarily like eliminated that social pressure to have, you know, desirable content which I think is the problem with it. So if your goal is to be authentic on an app, I think now in my personal experience with Be Real, it's like you should be authentic, but what you're doing authentically should still be cool, you know, which is, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just counterintuitive. I don't know. So yeah. I think the concept is good. I think a lot of ways people use it isn't necessarily the way that it was created to be used. Um, so personally, I have Be Real. I think it's really fun. I use it, but I, my goal is not to have, you know, a hundred friends on the app. It is supposed to just be authentic. And I don't really take a lot of, um, I don't know, like I'm not using it as like a highlight reel. I think if, if my, like personally, if I started using it and it was like, man, there's a lot of pressure to have like good pictures or be doing really cool things, then it just defeats the point of having the app in the first place. Yeah. Well said. And I think the time is too long. We've talked about that. It's too long. It like takes too long for you to take the photo. Like you should have 60 seconds, 60 seconds. If you don't get it, then you don't post no late posts. This is a dating question. So this will be fun. How do you know when you're ready to date? I see that hand Chandler. How do you know when you're ready to date? So I think this may be a hot take. I think you are ready to date when you don't need to date. Ooh. So I think that it's a dangerous thing to date from a place of need. You should date from a place of spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, um, and maturity in every area of your life. Mm. Because I think if you date from a place of, I need this, then it's going to end probably pretty rough. Super good. I would tag on to, you're probably ready to date when you find somebody you want to date. Like I know mm. for me, I never dated before Augustine because there was no one in my world that I wanted to date, or I thought was, um, you know, honestly like a worthy man. So I was like, I'm just not going to date because why would I personally like waste my time? And obviously there's different, you know, some people date for fun, which I don't think that's bad necessarily. But for me, I was like, dating is more of a serious business. Um, and so I didn't have anybody in my life that I wanted to date. And when I met Augustine, I was like, wow, I think I'm ready to date because I found somebody who's worth dating. So, you know, mm -hmm. don't just date whoever, because they're there. It's like really 
think and pray about that. And if the Lord's highlighting that person to you, there's probably a reason why. I would also add on to say, like, are you in a place of where you feel healed? You know, like you're not going to be perfect mm. to date. No one's perfect or else no one would be dating. But I do think you would be healthy. So I think it's good to consider like what steps forward do I need to take yeah. to be healthy to date? You know, whether that's like, hey, I'm stuck in, you know, a habitual sin. I'm, you know, in an unhealthy addiction. Like consider those things that maybe you're potentially not recovered from. And I think healing is super important to Mm. be in that process before you begin to date. You know, you're ready to date when you can take rejection. Uh, Mm. Because if you can't take rejection well, then it's like, you shouldn't be stepping into that game because it is like part of dating. I think is like, you go on a date. Oh, it's not going to work. Like it's not, it's not right. It doesn't fit. Like don't really feel that. And so um, being told like, Hey, I don't want a second date (laughs) or you being able to give rejection in a good way. So it's like, Hey, it was a great one day. Don't really see us dating. And then being able to communicate that. So I think, how do you know when you're ready to date, you can receive rejection well, um, and you can give rejection in a healthy way as well. What does it look like? Kind of, I guess this is in the same dating arena, but um, what does it look like to practically guard your heart in a relationship? How do you recommend striving for holiness rather than happiness. And again, I think this is in the realm of dating. So Allie, you want to start us off? Yeah, I'll kind of answer the first part of the question. So I think it really comes down to three things about guarding your heart. To me, that's time, sharing, and your thoughts. So time is like, how much time are you spending with this person? If you have dropped all your friends, all your other commitments, because you just want to be with your boyfriend 24 seven, that's not guarding your heart and that's not a healthy relationship. So Mm. like, what are your, what are your time boundaries? And then what are you sharing with this person? Again, especially in a new relationship, like you want to talk, you want to share, you want to tell your life story. You, everything is new. Everything's exciting, but there are things in your life that need to be told only to, you know, for me as a woman to other women, like my new boyfriend, Augustine, he didn't need to know X, Y, and Z in our first three months of our relationship. Like those are for my friends or those are for trusted women in my life. So how much are you sharing with this person? Do you have healthy boundaries with that? Um, and then finally, like, what are your, what are your thoughts? Like, what's your thought life? Like with this person, like, are you constantly fantasizing? Like, okay, we're getting married. We're having five kids, all of this. And you've been dating for two weeks. Like that is definitely not guarding your heart and like having a healthy mindset. So just what's, what's your thought life like in all of this? I would kind of to tag off what Ali said. One of the things that I've tried to do throughout my relationship is in any new relationship, whether platonic or romantic or whatever is keep like the bible says there's safety in a multitude of counselors and so keeping people around me that are able to speak into um, that relationship from an outside perspective because i've found and and i think a lot of people can say this too when you get into a new relationship you can become blind almost and so i think having outside voices kind of like the blind spot in the mirror like they can see that part that you can't. And so I think that will help aid guarding your heart so that let's say things don't work out or um, whatever it is, um, you're not 
completely crushed because you have other voices speaking into that. I would say really like I think your heart can become unguarded when you don't have good communication about the relationship or there's like not good boundaries, you know, with what that relationship looks like, whether that's emotional or physical. But I think your emotional boundaries kind of going off of what Ali said have to be in line with your level of commitment. And if they're not, then I think you're going to be hurt. I think to answer the second part of that question of like, how do you strive for um, holiness instead of happiness in a relationship, specifically in like a romantic relationship? I think happiness very much is like self-focused and holiness is very much Jesus-focused. So I think when you're looking at being in a dating relationship or you are in a dating relationship, the goal of holiness is becoming like Christ, like to be holy is to be like Christ. And so um, if you're looking at a dating relationship and saying, how do I keep this holy and not just happy. It's like, don't make it about yourself. Don't make it about what you feel, what you desire. Um, make it about like what Christ says is right and just and holy. And I think you'll find that it's a pretty easy way to tell. I was talking with someone, um, just the other day and we were talking about how naturally in a relationship you want to do certain things. And I said, Hey, naturally, I totally get that but we're called to be like supernatural we're called to be something outside of what is normal. If it was just normal for Christians to date the same way that non-Christians do, um, then that wouldn't be a holy relationship. Um, but if we are called to be set apart and different, then we do have to strive for a different goal. And that goal is not our own happiness, our own fulfillment. Our goal is to be Christ-like and in a romantic relationship for that person also to become Christ-like. And so that means you won't be able to do everything that the world does in dating. So. Next question. How do you find purpose in post-grad life? Um, I think that uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is having realistic expectations for post-grad life. I think a lot of people think, man, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get my dream job. I'm going to have my dream paycheck. I'm going to be doing all these things. And for some people, maybe, but I think for a lot of people, it doesn't necessarily look that way. And so having realistic expectations for what that transition is going to look like is really important. And then I would say number two is take initiative to get plugged into healthy and like positive community. Um, you know, in college, a lot of your community is just built in around you. And in post-grad life, you do have to take a lot more effort and initiative to keep community, you know, to schedule, to figure out what do I want my hobbies to look like? Am I just going to work and going home and not really doing anything? Or am I taking initiative to like plan fun things and things that I enjoy doing and making time for that? Yeah, I think that's so good. I really feel like post-grad, you do. It's a chance to create a life for yourself. But if you don't create purpose, the world's not going to give that to you. And your job... I think a lot of jobs do give a sense of purpose. Like, you know, especially like, you know, I have a nurse, I'm one of my best friends, she's a nurse. And like, there's so much purpose in that job, but she has to have individual purpose outside of her career too. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times, especially at ORU, because there's so many programs, there's so many things that you can just, you know, kind of get handed to you where you can just join really easily. There's kind of this disillusionment when you graduate and you're like, oh, like I have to go and find these things. I have to go and sign up for these things. I have to go and do these things on my own. So I think it's just realizing like, okay, what type of life do I want to lead? Um, like this is a super simple example, but after post-grad, I ran a half marathon. No one is telling me I need to go run a half marathon or I have to do this or whatever, but it's just a goal I had. And honestly, it gave me a ton of purpose after post-grad. Like I had time to run for two to three hours a day and all this stuff. And it gave me 
like a goal to work towards. So I think having attainable goals, especially that first year after post-grad is really important because all of your kind of mile markers are taken away. And most likely you're in a job for an indefinite period of time. And so like creating goals that you can attain, like, especially if you're a goal-oriented person, which obviously I am, um, that can be really helpful. What do you guys see as like healthy qualities or characteristics to look like or look for in friendships? Honestly, I love talking about friends, so I can totally talk about friends and you should cut me off at some point, Augustine, because I could talk <laughs> a lot about this topic, but Do it. Um, I mean, friendships are so important. I mean, that's just like basic foundation, but I've found that, you know, my friends, I have three best friends from high school that I've been friends with, like pretty much my entire growing up life. And then I have, um, three best friends from college and like a period of time after that. And my friends have kept me grounded. They've made me, you know, laugh. Like we have so much fun. I take trips with my friends. I go camping and backpacking with um, a group of girls, um, like two to three times a year. And like my friendships have given so much purpose to like my post-grad life. But I think the biggest thing about my friendships that I really value is my friends not only challenge me, but like they cause me to want to be a better woman and a better follower of Christ. And so we, my friends, like we dialogue, we dialogue about everything. Like this week we've been talking about, um, like adoption and fostering. And that's just like on our Marco Polo that we do like seven times a week. Literally we're always marking and stuff like that. Cause our schedules are really different. We live in different parts of the country, but it's like find friends who really challenge and sharpen you, um, in every area of your life. And then find friends who are just fun. Like my best friends are so much fun. I really can't imagine my life without them because they add so much value and joy. And like, obviously I, hopefully I add value and joy back to them. So, um, again, I could go on forever, but healthy friendships are one of the best gifts you can give yourself by being a good friend and like searching out healthy friendships to cultivate, especially while you're in college. Very practically, like a few things that I think I look for in a healthy relation, like friendship would be honest, uh, honesty, uh, reliability, consistency, and confidentiality. And I got these ideas from this book that I read called Relational Intelligence by Dr. Darius Daniels. Mm. And that book changed my whole entire perspective about friends because I realized what most people call a friend or especially in Christian circles is not a friend at all. Mm. It's uh, what he would call an associate. It's, it's somebody who is an associate, somebody who is, you are with them because your schedules cross, you're their roommate, but that does not mean they're your friend. Mm. And so I often go into friendships, just being completely honest, like, Hey, these are some of my deepest fears. These are, this is some of my deepest struggles. And, um, that is kind of how I gauge friendships, but those are some of the qualities that I look for in a healthy friendship. This question says how to have thick skin and a soft heart. And I think specifically they're talking about in leadership, like what does it look like to have thick skin and a soft heart? Yeah. So I, I think that I thought about this and I think that in my experience, if you do not develop thick skin, it will be impossible for you to have and maintain a soft heart. Mm. So you may have a soft heart for some time with thin skin, but I think that life and people and what people say, people's criticism has a way of hardening your heart. And so if you can't um, 
if you're offended all of the time or whatever it may be, and you have thin skin, that soft part will eventually become hard. Mm. So I think having people in your life that you openly welcome to say, Hey, you can, you can correct me here. You can reprove me here. There's some people that just go around and try to correct everybody for everything or criticize everybody about everything. Having people and voices in my life that I know that they genuinely love me beyond my gift. And even if I didn't have my gift at the end of the day or my job or whatever it may be, they would still love me. Having that voice to speak in mm. in a way that's corrective in nature has developed that thick skin in my, in my life and yeah. um, helped me to have a soft heart. Yeah, that's good. I would add on to that and just say, I mean, you have to kind of analyze both of them separately, you know, like having a soft heart really is what allows you to care for people well to show compassion for people well people you're working with people in your life, but a thick skin is really what allows you to guard that. And so, you know, it's Proverbs four that says above all else, God, your guard, your heart for everything you do flows from it. So I think it's, it really is like such a biblical concept and it's so important for leaders. I would say the first thing I think of kind of going off of what Chandler said is like, you have to be able to forgive easily um, because that's really like what keeps your heart free of so much offense. Um, You know, that quote, that's like, I'm going to misquote it, but it's like unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to like get hurt from it, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is so true. And so yeah. I think that's the first thing I think of is like, you have to be like willing and able to forgive and like keep yeah. your heart free of offense. And then the second thing is like really understanding the purpose of criticism. And if I'm going to be honest, like I still struggle sometimes to receive criticism. Well, like I'm very much like I like to do things so well. So making mistakes is like challenging for me for sure. But I think it's, it's such a place of growth and so important as a leader to be able to say, hey, like I want feedback and I want to, you know, hear alternating ideas or hear what I can improve on or just receive your criticism yeah. uh, and really be able to lay down your defense and your pride to allow trusted people to be able to speak into that. I would just add, I think what helps me have thick skin and a soft heart at the same time and like stay there is I think you have to know your why. Like if you know your why, and if you know me, I talk about the why a lot, but I really do think it helps because if you know your why, it's like, hey, when people say things, when they don't understand, they may not understand the why. They don't understand why you're doing certain things the same way. But if you understand the why, then it's like you understand that it may not be as personal to you as a as it is a misunderstanding of goals. And so my goal is this, but your goal is that. We don't agree on the goal. So of course you're not going to like what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. But if you're committed to your why, you know that your why that you've been given, whether it be the way to do something or the goal for the end of the year. um, If you know that's what God's called you to do, then you can stand firm on that. And it helps kind of deflect things. And I think to Gabby's point, you realize what is criticism and what is more of like a hater. I think criticism is good because when you critique something, it's like, hey, here's the little things we can sure up. But more of a hater is like coming out at you and saying like who you are isn't enough. And to, to me, that's nothing constructive. That's not good criticism. And so I think just understanding your why, like if you find yourself being offended, hurt or um, repulsed by certain things in culture and leadership in life, you should step back and be like, do I know my why for being in this job? Do I know my why for being in this relationship? Do I know my why 
for public speaking. So when someone says, Hey, that wasn't really good, whatever, <laughs> whatever you hear, it deflects off because you kind of know your why it's like more sure artificial intelligence. The question is kind of a four part one. So I'm going to read all four parts and then you guys jump in. So how do you think artificial intelligence fits into a Christian world view? Do you believe AI can become sentient? If yes, is that a form of humans creating life? And if so, do you think that interferes with the idea of God as creator? <laughs> Everyone's kind of looking at me. I kind of made a joke earlier when I, re- when I read this question. You know, it's a great question. So I, I'm truly not knocking it at all. But I kind of laughed when when the question is like, you know, is that humans creating life? And does that interfere with the idea of God as creator? And I kind of, I kind of laughed and I, and I looked at Augustine, I was like, well, you know, when a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, <laughs> they come together and they make a baby, which is making life. So humans do already create life, which I understand like, this is a total different connotation, but just kind of had to laugh because it's Go like, there, oh, Go there. For a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see where the technology goes. I mean, I think AI and the idea of thinking is very different than feeling. I mean, you could argue right now that, I mean, our computers think and they do processes that are way beyond my like human ability, you know? So, I mean, we've already started down this path a long time. I think AI just kind of literally has a face to it. So it's, it feels very new. And we all like think about iRobot, at least I do. I don't know if people still watch that movie anymore, but like we think iRobot like kind of thing. I honestly am not super into tech. So this is not my like wheelhouse, so to speak, but um, I don't know. I just think we kind of have to see where it goes. I think as with anything that humans have created, there's obviously danger to it, but there's also a lot of benefits as well. So, I mean, I feel super open about it, I guess, is my like very roundabout, like kind of catch all answer. I think we just kind of need to see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of with you. I, I'm not super techie, but I think it's kind of a nuanced question. And like, what is the def like what how are you trying to describe like sentient in the way of right now ai is a very like logical code you know there's like you said there's a difference in thinking and feeling and i you know computer technology doesn't have this like inner voice free will feelings like abstract thought and i don't know if it ever will like i you know honestly haven't done a ton of research on it but i do think that you know i don't necessarily no, maybe this is like a hot sentence to say, but like, I don't know if it necessarily has like stronger implications than like selective breeding for traits. Like mm. for instance, with like mm. stock, you know, it's like you choose what you're going to replant so that your next season of, you know, crops are the best and most beneficial, you know? So mm. I guess what I'm saying is I don't necessarily know that like that, you know, pets, like that's not necessarily, there's just so much that has just over time, like changed. And I don't think that it necessarily goes against, you know, what the creator role, like, I don't think we're trying to use, you know, usurp the creator role, usurp like the Lord's, you know, I don't know what I'm saying, but pretty much don't necessarily know, you know, it's not necessarily what was originally created, but I don't think that it goes against the intention either. So kind of like you said, I'm like interested to see where it goes. I think there's pros and cons for sure though. And I think with technology in general, you could say this about crypto. You could say this about electric cars. You could say this about AI. You could say, hey, we already know how the story ends. Like if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you know how the story ends. 
So to me, anything that happens between now and how the story ends doesn't really matter because we know the ultimate end is that King of Kings, Lord of Lords, he's going to reign. And so anything we create is going to be worthless when that time comes. Like it doesn't matter anything in between now. And then it's like, we could have wars. We could have an apocalypse. We could have zombies. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we know the end of the story. So in, in the big picture perspective, that's how I kind of think on the worry side, like, should we be worried about this or that? Like, I'm not because I feel like I already know the end of the story. Now, does it make our life harder? Will it make our life easier? That's a bunch of hypotheticals that I have no idea. But I will say with every new innovation comes a new opportunity for the gospel to be shared in a unique way. So we see that with apps all the time. Like when TikTok came on the scene, everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's just for dancing. Oh my gosh, it's just for this or hot takes or what. But then you see these TikTok creators blow up and they are creating awesome things to share the gospel or share the Bible with people that would not have heard it otherwise. We see churches pop up on discord apps and zoom churches and like all sorts of things. So I think with any new technology, I think the better question to ask is how can we utilize this for the gospel um, in a new and creative way? Next question. How do you guys handle your own mental health while being in leadership positions that ultimately result in working with other people's mental health issues at the same time? I, I can answer that. So I, um, you know, haven't worked in like the mental health field for a long time, but I have worked as a counselor and have studied counseling. And I think it's really, first of all, I would say like as simple as it sounds like, do not neglect your time with the Lord. I think that really in any leadership position, pastoral care, counseling, like job setting, you're really only as healthy in those conversations with people and through your work as you are healthy outside of that. And so really taking care of yourself well and being aware of your own needs, your own mental health, and really like knowing your limits too. Like, how are you doing? Like, can I care for this person well? Or am I not doing well myself? Is like an important thing to consider? Yeah. And I would say the second one is really having a network of support. Um, you know, a lot of times in a lot of jobs, you're kind of carrying one direction. So you're caring for someone that you are like working with or working for or in counseling, you're caring for your client. And I don't think that one way caring necessarily means it's the only way of caring. And so if you are in a job where you're not receiving like the same level of emotional support back, which oftentimes that is the way it goes, then I would say, how are you receiving that support? So having friends, peers, like mentors, leaders, bosses, like people surrounding you to like have a good social support to know how you're doing and like just care for yourself well. Yeah, I think that's so, so good. Um, I feel like the more you grow in your leadership, the more layers of support you do need around you. So just to be vulnerable, like I personally see a counselor, um, like a licensed professional therapist that I see. I also have older women in my life who I trust, who I can go to for advice, um, who speak into my life. And then I also have friends. We've kind of talked about friends a little bit, but like friends who are also like having that two-way relationship where I'm pouring into them, but they're pouring into me. And I need those three layers um, in order to do my job well. And then obviously it's like, yes, the Lord, Augustine, the secret place, like those relationships too. But like, if I didn't have those other three layers, then I would, 
I would feel a deficit in my own mental health, I think. And so it's taken me a long time to kind of realize that and to kind of get to that place where I'm okay with sharing that and, you know, being vulnerable with the people that it's appropriate for me to be vulnerable with. I think that's another big part of mental health as well. It's like knowing who's a safe person for me to share with and who's a person that I am pouring into. So it's not, that's not an appropriate thing for me to share with them, but I can share this with somebody else. So I think it's just having those outlets um, and knowing what those outlets are for you. The question is, how do you grow if you can't receive criticism without crumbling? And the little addition I'll add on there is, what does good criticism look like? Because I think that's a, a question. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, criticism can be good, but what does good criticism look like? Yeah, I'll um I'll definitely tackle the first part of the question. But I mean, really, honestly, I don't think you can grow very much as a leader if you're not able to receive criticism. Mm -hmm. But I think understanding what criticism is, is critical to the conversation. Like real criticism isn't meant to tear down and belittle. It's meant to make something better. Like when I write a paper and I, my mom is a professional writer. So when I give it to my mom for her to critique, I don't want her to say, yep, everything's amazing. It looks great. Like I want to make my paper better, but that's only possible if I'm open to how, how I can make it better. So I think understanding the role of criticism first is really important, but then I think like in order to receive criticism, well, you have to have a soft heart. So we can go back to the soft heart thing for sure. But also I think there's an element of understanding that not everyone's voice has the same weight. So we live in a world where everyone, everyone's opinion is everywhere. And if we were to take everyone's criticism, we literally would not be able to function because of the weight, like the oppression of that. So you have to decide like, who's my close circle where I trust their opinion, even if it's different from my own. So like for me, like it's those friends that I was talking about. It's some mentors in my life. It's Augustine. It's my boss their opinion and their criticism means way more to me than the average person who follows me on Instagram, because mm. I have that relationship and that equity with them. Yeah. And so I think finding those people, identifying those people. And then when criticism comes, it's like, man, I want to operate in humility. I want to have a learner's mentality because at the end of the day, like it's to be a better leader. Like it's not to, it's not even about performance. Like it's, it's mm. to be you know, a better follower of Christ, like if they have the right intentions and the right, you know, motives. So I think that's helped me a lot of just like, Hey, like everyone has an opinion. I'm not going to make everybody happy as a leader. I'm going to make decisions that a lot of people disagree with. And that's okay. At the end of the day, like I'm accountable to the Lord for my decisions, but also like, I care about what this inner circle has to say way more than I care about everybody else. Mm -hmm. I need to add what Ali said. I I don't think that you can go throughout scripture, especially in Proverbs. There's so many times where it talks about how being, cor being corrected um, and being disciplined, being reproved is actually a form of love. Mm. And to be completely honest, like Ali said, I don't think you can grow much if you can't receive criticism. And I'm reminded of this picture in John 15, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he says that, Every single, everyone that the father is pleased with, he prunes, mm -hmm. but then there's some that he cuts off. Both of them are very painful and both of them uh, require um, some form of cutting, right? But one is so that you can grow more because it's out of pleasure. Um, and the other is, is just being cut off totally. 
That's so good. I would say for the second part of your question, like how to criticize someone well, I would say it's really important. I cannot talk. It's really important to consider what it looks like to call someone higher and to criticize like their behaviors, their actions without criticizing their character. Mm. I think that's like when criticism can be really harmful and hurtful to people mm. is whenever they're just receiving criticism about their character versus, hey, like let's talk through you know, in a, in an appropriate way in time to like criticize someone to bring that to them. But like, let's talk through the actions, the behaviors, and not just calling someone's character as flawed or bad. I think to also get like a, a sign of good criticism is that they're always going to say, I'm submitting this to you. Like I'm, I'm putting this before you, like much like a prophetic word should be where when mm-hmm. someone's giving a prophetic word, they are not the voice of God. They believe they've heard the voice of God. They believe they have something from God, but they are not the voice of God. So in the same way with criticism, it's like, hey, I feel that this is right. I feel like I should say this. So if if you're going to give criticism, submit it, just submit it. Mm -hmm. Because if you feel like it's something you need to tell someone, it's not the voice of the Lord, you are not God. And so coming before and be like, hey, I saw this, I've been seeing this in your life and your leadership in this relationship you have. I, I, I see how you've been talking in this way. And so when the correction comes, you're speaking something you've seen, acknowledged, um, understood and saying, hey, I just want to submit this to you, that it feels like this. It seems like this. It It is being perceived by some like this. So I just want to challenge you. Like that might be something you should look at because this is the ultimate fruit of what you may or may not see. And like Chandler said earlier, in the episode, a lot of that is blind spot. So I try to go in when I criticize people and I want to do it well, I'm going to assume it's in a blind spot. I'm going to assume that they don't know the full effect that their language is having, that the way they're talking about someone is having, that their leadership is having, that their sarcasm is happening, is having, you don't, you assume that. And if they are aware of that and they don't care, then that's one conversation. But most times I've found when you give criticism, and you kind of give that assumption of you may not know, but when you do this or when you lead like this, or when this happens and you react this way, this is the fruit. That criticism sounds a lot better than being like, Hey, you're a terrible leader because X, Y, Z. So I think like Abby said, no, it's not a character attack, but also help them see the fruit in the grand scheme of things. Great Q and a, thank you guys so much for sharing. And I hope those that are listening or watching, uh, really got some good things out of the episode. So 60 seconds or less on the spot, you guys just have to answer one challenge for a young adult going into 2023. Oh, I could definitely start because I have mine. Uh, read a book in the first month of 2023. <laughs> start go. January off strong, okay? School has barely started, so I don't want to hear any excuses about how you have school and how you have homework. Absolutely not. Pick a book. I don't care if it's popular fiction or A.W. Tozer. Pick a book that you've been wanting to read and read it in January of 2023. Well, I just am going to add on to that. So mine, I'm going to tag on to Allie's and say you should read a book. You also should give her Instagram account a follow. Sure, but she created a reading Instagram account called An Excellent Library. You can see on her bio. And it's like a bookshelf with all of her reading recs, which are incredible. So you should follow and then read a book. Mm. Wow. 
Thanks, Gab. I'm just starting. So, you know, not, not too many this, posts, but we'll get there. After this, she's going to have thousands okay. of followers. All the, po- every, every podcast listener, go and follow Allie. You're going to have thousands. Oh boy. <laughs> she's going to be a book go. influencer. The first of her kind. <laughs> going into this next year, I think that it's going to be absolutely critical for you to reevaluate who's in your circle and who's your hedge. I think we've talked about that a lot. It's good that you have a lot of people on the bus, but I think in 2023, it's critical that you evaluate who is in what seat because you are only going as far as the Mm. people around you. Mm. And um, purpose is not possible without people. And so it's not in 2023, it's not just going to be a matter of having people on the bus. It's going to be a matter of evaluating and placing people in what seat. My final challenge uh, for 2022 going into 2023 is be able to answer the question, how am I being discipled? If one of us walked up to you on campus or around Tulsa or wherever and we said, hey, how are you being discipled right now? I would hope you could list off the two, three, four, five, 20 things that you're doing to actively be discipled. Maybe that's committing to a podcast. Maybe that's reading a great book. Maybe that's asking a mentor out to coffee once a month. What are you doing to actively be discipled and not just allowing things to come to you, but you are choosing to be discipled?